Acts chapter 20. Here we go. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we got some up here for you. Uh, looks like Zach's handing them out because he's a swell guy. Thanks, Zach. If they don't have a Bible, Zach, just give it to them. And they're like, it's on my phone. And he'd be like, no, you don't. You just look at paper. It doesn't text you or give you sale alerts halfway through service. Uh, page 542, if you got a white or a blue Bible like I got up here. Um, that's where we're going to be. I was in the car with my son the other day, and uh, he said, Dad, you were too harsh on your sermon on Sunday. And, uh, and I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, you went too far when you were talking about the husbands who play video games. And, and it actually, it's, it was, it's not the only time that this has come up in my conversations this week. Um, so I was, I was like, oh, all right. So my son's looking out for you guys. If you're a video game player, he cares about you. But, uh, the thing that came up in our conversations was like, when I communicate with people, sometimes they don't feel cared for and, and that bums me out. Okay. So I do this, this pastor like church thing, because first of all, I believe with all my heart, this is what God has called me to do and to do anything else would be disobedient. But secondly, like, I really like people. I love you guys. I love hearing the stories. I love looking out at a room like this and knowing story after story after story of God's goodness and grace. And I care about people. And if that doesn't come across in my communication, that really bums me out. Because I do, like, I care about the, the wives and the kids who are in those families. And I definitely stand behind my point from a couple weeks ago that it's really a bummer when wives and kids have to sit in a home where the husband prioritizes things that aren't a priority, like video games, over them. That really bums me out, too, and gets me fired up a little bit if I think about it too long. But I also know that I really love those husbands, and I want them to walk in the fullness of what God has for them. And I would, no, I would like nothing more than for them to be living the life God had called them to and leading their family well and thriving in that moment. So I don't want to put out the thing like we don't care about those types of people. We definitely care about those types of people. I definitely care about those types of people. So if you've been in a conversation with me or heard me teach a message and you're like, I don't know that that guy cares about me. I'm sorry for that. I'm, I'm openly telling you like I'm working on that. It's something the Lord is revealing in my heart. And uh, my son is part of that process. So, um, Anyway, Acts chapter 20, here we go. In life, there are moments where it's bigger than maybe you would expect. Like there's certain things in life that just carry a little extra weight. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. You're going through life and you hit a, a moment where it's like, this is not just any other moment. This is not just any other time, right? Uh, in a very shallow example, right? You're flipping through TV channels and it, it says like, oh, it's like, one minute left in a close game, like you kind of sit in on that, like, oh, this is more important than just any other game I would see normally. Or uh, I know maybe a, a deeper example is uh, when I used to live in Laguna Beach, I worked at a church down there, California. My wife and I would walk along Laguna Beach all the time, and hundreds of people have weddings there. And so when you're walking along the park there that's overlooking the cliffs and everything, it's very common to come across a wedding. 
And my wife would always stop, and she's got, like, we got to spend, like, 20 minutes, like, analyzing bridesmaids' dresses and, like, wedding dresses and flower color choice and all that stuff, which she really cares about, which is fine. But there was, like, this sense that kind of went over the whole beach in that area. Like, everybody that was walking by sensed that that moment carried a little more weight than just the regular, like, surfing or kite flying at the beach moments. You know what I mean? Like, you walk by a wedding, and you're kind of like, Oh, and what inevitably happens is it turns into this, like, like depth of thought that isn't just normal. So not only are they going through something that's weightier than normal, but now you're starting to think about, like, if you're married, you're kind of like, oh, like, I was, uh, remember when we got married? And you're starting to think about maybe the family that was there, stuff like that. Or if you're not married, you're probably, I wonder if I'll ever get married. There's just, like, something that happens in these moments that are extra weighty that, like, permeates and like spreads and like causes extra weight then to be in your thoughts and and, and mindset uh, towards these things. So we're going to read about a moment like that today, a moment that carries a little more weight to it. And when you combine the moment that we're in with the words that are actually going to be said, you get something that is very impactful. And I hope you feel that this morning as we read through. Um, I hopeful, hopefully it moves you in, in a way like kind of that wedding kind of moved those people, even though it wasn't necessarily uh, in, intensely gospel-centered, right? Uh, just that you would be moved and feel that weight of this moment. So if you remember in the account in Acts chapter 20, uh, we actually started Acts chapter 20 last week. Uh, Paul is uh, on his third missionary trip. He is traveling from Macedonia to Jerusalem. On the trip, he has to go past a city, Ephesus, which is a city that he spent a lot of time in, three years, like church planting and pouring into these people and pastoring the church, and then he actually left. And on his way back through, he's trying to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. So he's like, if I stop in Ephesus, there's just too many people at this church I was at for a long time. It's going to take too long to say hi to everybody. I'll never make it to Jerusalem. So he actually goes to a city south of uh, Ephesus by about three miles and uh, 20 miles, I'm sorry, and ends up calling the elders, the pastors of the church in Ephesus down to him and gives them kind of this last um, speech. And what's interesting is in this last speech, we're going to read it today, he kind of says, I just want you to know none of you are ever going to see my face again, which is, which is a pretty impactful thing. Like he's saying like, this is the last time we're going to see each other. And he's, he's talking to this group of people that he led uh, and, and, like I said, planted the church and pastored for a number of years. So it just turned into one of those weighty moments, right? I don't know if you could picture it in your mind, but Paul's, like, sitting there, and Paul is, like, no joke, right? He's been in prison. He's been beaten. He's been whipped. Like, he's, like, endured, put in the stocks, tortured uh, for the things that God has called him to do. So I just picture this guy who's experienced, like, riots and mob violence and was stoned to death at one point in time and he's sitting down with these people that he loves dearly and he's like saying like this is going to be my last thing to tell you I picture like I don't know if this is accurate but like a navy seal or something like like just came out of the battle like the battle's still going on like behind him like over his shoulder and there's like the young recruits and yeah they're trained and yeah they know what to do and yeah they're ready for battle but he's kind of like let me let me give you one last thing before you head in there and, like, there's some weight to that, especially for me as a pastor uh, reading this. I'm kind of like, if, if I'm about to walk into this battle that Paul is in the midst of and he's got one last thing to say to me, 
Like, what would it, like, this is, I should lean in, right? You should get on the edge of your seat and be like, well, tell me, Paul, what, what is this last thing that you have to say to these people? And he sits down and he addresses these people. And that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus. So Miletus is the town just south of Ephesus. He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now elders uh, is the church word uh, that we would use for pastors. Um, And so these are like church leaders probably. Um, And when they came to him, verse 18, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, serving the Lord. Paul starts this off in a unique way. He sits down and he says, I got one last thing to say to you guys before we never see each other again. And he doesn't actually start with like a piece of advice. He doesn't actually start with wisdom. He starts with this. He says, you know how I lived among you the whole time. Like he, he's basically saying, in my mind, most of what I had to teach you, I taught you by example. Like, you watched me do it. So he's not saying, like, there's not a piece of information I'm going to give you right now that's going to be life-transforming. You're going to be like, oh, I get it now. He says, most of what I had to give to you, I gave to you by example when I lived with you. Now, here's my question then. Is that the way it's supposed to be, or is that just the way Paul did it? And when I read that as a church leader, and I want with all my heart God to be honored and glorified and people to be built up and walking in freedom and making a difference in this world, I, like, I'm, and I'm like, is this how we are supposed to do it, or is this just the way that Paul did it? And so if you open your Bible and kind of go back in there, if you open it to the very first page, you will see that God created everything, space, time, matter, and then the stars and planets and earth and everything, every single thing on the planet, God creates. It's all very good. And then he creates mankind, and it takes about two seconds for mankind to mess everything up. So if you're opening from the front of your Bible, it's like two pages in, mankind messes the whole dang thing up. And God comes down, and he doesn't give us a list of rules to follow in order to fix what we broke. He actually says, I'm going to send a Savior. And the seed of the woman is is promised on page two of your Bible, maybe page one, depending on your font size, right? And the seed of the woman is promised that he's going to come and he's going to fix what you've broken, humanity. And from Genesis chapter three, for the rest of your Bible, it's about that guy that's coming, right? And so from that point on, that Savior is promised, and people are looking forward to him. And then the Bible kind of zooms in on this one family, uh, family of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The reason being because that Savior is going to come from this family. That family grows into a nation, the nation of Israel, which you would probably know historically. And the reason we're following that nation is because, like I said, the Savior is going to come from that nation, and we're following that nation around. And then we get to the New Testament in your Bible, and that Savior actually comes. And he's like born of a woman and everybody's real excited. Like, I think this is the one. And he's like, yeah, I'm the one. And then he grows up and he gets to be about 30 years old. And he goes and it says he starts his ministry. And what happens is he goes and he gets baptized. 
and then he goes straight into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days, and then he comes back, and like I said, in your Bible, the heading are, the headings would be, Jesus starts his ministry. The Savior of the world starts his ministry. You know what the first thing he does is? He finds some people, and he says, follow me. He doesn't say, understand me. He doesn't say, know my teachings. He doesn't understand, process this information. He says, follow me. He doesn't even say, worship me. Think about that. He could have. He could have been like, worship me. I'm worth it. He is. But that's not what he calls us to do. He says, follow me. And so we have this idea built into the very first moments of the Christian life, this idea of following, not primarily of understanding or of knowing, but of following. That's like built into what it means to be a Christian. That's why as much as I possibly can, I refer to the people of Christ, the body of Christ, the believers as Jesus followers, because that's what we're supposed to do. And it's not just an idea that's like, hey, that's a cool thing to say. No, no, no. It's the intention of God. Like, that's what he called us to do. And then clearly, that got passed down from Jesus to Paul because the Apostle Paul says it a number of times in his writings, follow me like I follow Christ. I'm following Jesus. You follow me. You follow me like I'm following Jesus. And then other people will follow you. And over and over, this example is set. And he said, it basically is saying it again here in Acts chapter 20 as he's speaking to these people he loves dearly for the last time. He's saying, you know how I lived. Follow that example. Now, the temptation, especially as believers, is just to skip over this and read that, okay, you know how I lived among you. Let's get to the good stuff. Instead of reading this and seeing that the idea of following an example is foundational to Christian faith. And if the Christian life is primarily about being a follower, then the, the prerequisite question, the appropriate question is if I'm setting an example, what's the example that I'm setting? If I'm following someone and leading people to follow me, who am I following and who am I telling others to follow? Right? It's like this is like foundational because Christianity is not like it's not primary. It's really easy to like get into these things. We're like, we know the arguments. We know the information. We know the political stances. We know the, all the things of the Christian life. And we know what to do, but we don't actually walk in it. We don't actually follow Jesus. Right? We, we, we say the right things. We know the right things. We vote the correct way. We like the correct things on Facebook. We spend our money in a, a decent way, but we're not actually following. We're just knowing. It's kind of like my son does Taekwondo. There's not a lot of Taekwondo instructors that just read all the books. Right? They actually have to have done it. They actually know it. They actually lived it out. They like learn the moves and like can kick you in the face and like break bricks with their head and stuff. Like, and if they didn't, no one would follow them. And that's, that's what we're called to be as Jesus followers, right? Jesus said, follow me. Paul is following Jesus and also saying, you know the example I set for you. And that's where the power comes from. The weight of everything Paul is about to say is going to come from the words that he, not just the words that he said, but the example that he set. Now, 
I'm going to talk about this in a minute. But you're going to read this and, and read him talk about humility and courage and obedience to the Spirit and walking by faith and living in uncertainty. And all of his teaching is going to have this strong foundation of it, of like Paul actually living it out in front of people for years. And it's not theory to these people. It's what they actually watched Paul live out. And, and here's where he starts serving the Lord. He says, you know because you watched me live this out. And I've been serving the Lord. Not serving some idol or serving myself, but you've watched me. You know the example that I set. And what's he say in the text? Serving the Lord. Not serving myself, not serving this other thing, but serving the Lord. And then he says, not only have you watched me serve the Lord, I've done it with all humility. Is that pretty brazen? Like that takes some guts, right? To be like, you watched me serve the Lord with humility. I wouldn't say that because my son's over there going like, your servant kind of sucks, right? Like, <laughs> he wouldn't do that. He's much kinder than I am. But there is like, like getting up in front of people who have watched you live and saying like, hey, I've been pretty humble, guys, right? And there's some people like, I mean, that's gutsy to stand up in front of people and call Call yourself something that would invite such scrutiny from those people who are hearing it. And, and then he says this. Actually, let's read these next few verses and, and get a sense of what does it in this moment right now for the Apostle Paul to live as an example and serve the Lord. So, verse 22, let's read it. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face Again, So there it is. He says it. He says, this is going to be my last thing to you guys. We're never going to see each other again. So here we go. Final words. You guys have seen my example. Here's what I'm going through right now. And where does he start? He starts with this weird kind of uh, scale of how he values his life. Okay? Now, this is, this is very helpful for us to think about. What makes our life valuable? I don't know if you ever thought about that. Like, what could you do in this moment that would add value to your life? I mean, you could be doing a lot of things with the moments of your life. Now, I think you did the, the most valuable thing you could possibly do right now on a Sunday morning is go to a Bible teaching church, right, and be around the community of believers. I think that's great. But the rest of our moments, like, what actually adds value to our life? And, and Paul kind of says it in such a way he believes his life only has value in so much as it can be used in service of the Lord. Like, like there is no value to Paul in living apart from serving the cause of Christ. Paul desired not to live a single day longer than was necessary for him to be used to serve Christ. Isn't that, it's such a different mindset than, than most people have. It's such a powerful mindset in my mind to think that he would say, my life has no value if I'm not serving Christ. It doesn't say, my life has a little bit of value. 
He, he doesn't say, my life has a little less value if I'm not serving Christ. Like, if I'm serving Christ, my life is this valuable. And if I'm not serving Christ, my life is like a 7 out of 10. That's not what he said. He said, no value. No value at all. He looks at it and he says, can these moments be used to serve Christ? Because if not, they're worth nothing to me. Our idea in America is that you work until you retire, and then you live out the rest of your days not working. So you're like, build up value, and then like, coast. Like, that's the idea. And Paul's like, coast? What? Like, if we're not building up value, like, let's stop living. Why do we, like, why would we do that? Like, if the value's gone, like, who needs to retire? Like, Phoenix sucks anyway, right? Sorry. <laughs> Uh, there's some Phoenix people here. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. Again, like, you don't care. I know. My son told me. Sorry. I do love people in Phoenix. That was mean of me to say. But, right, like, retirement's overrated. Like, who wants to spend out the rest of their days, like, I mean, I'm going to soapbox here. I worked on a golf course for a lot of my, like, life. And so I watched those guys at golf every day, and I'm just saying, like, if you, never mind, I'm, you get off notes, man, you're in trouble. Here's my point. Why would you want to spend one more minute alive than you had to? If you're a Christian, you realize that this life is the, as bad as it's going to get for you. Like, this is the most complicated and corrupted and infected with sin your experience will ever be. And Paul looks at this and says, like, I, I'll go through this living on earth as long as I know that I'm doing something to build the kingdom or drawing myself closer to Jesus or helping other people draw closer to Jesus. But when that's over, I want to be done. Now, the second thing he says about this, he says, I count my life as no value to it all. But then he says he's constrained by the spirit. OK, so there, I'm going to have six points. My life not having value at all is my first one. So if you're a note taker and that really bothers you that I don't have bullet points. That's the first one. But here's the second one, constrained by the Spirit. It's the idea that I have to do what the Spirit of God is leading me to do, okay? If I did anything else, I would be wasting my life. Can you set the example of living a life controlled by a power not your own? That's the question. Paul is like, I have to be comfortable living a life where I'm controlled by a power not my own. Most of us have to be in control, right? Don't elbow your wife. That wasn't nice. No, I'm just joking, right? If we're not in control, there's going to be problems. But Jesus set the example for us when he said, not my will, Father, but yours be done, right? Now, Paul is following Jesus's example and saying, I'm going to Jerusalem because the Spirit of God is compelling me. And he's turning to these guys and saying, Jesus did it. I'm doing it, and if you want to serve the Lord, you also are going to have to live a life of surrender to a power not your own. It's just, it's just part of the deal. Now, uh, th this is coupled with another thing, okay? Because the third point is 
that he doesn't know the outcome. So he's controlled by this power, not his own. And he says, not only am I controlled by a power, not my own, but I don't know the outcome. That's my third one, right? If you're doing notes, three, not knowing the outcome. Now, some of us hear that and we think we found a loophole because I said, controlled by a power, not your own. And you're like, I ain't doing that. And then you think the loophole is that, hey, God, I will gladly surrender to the power that is not my own as long as you tell me where you're taking me. And I agree that it's a good idea for me to go there. Anybody ever do that? Hey, God, I'm all in. I, whatever you want, glory, glory, hallelujah. Just tell me first so I can give it the okay. Right? You tell me where we're going, and if I agree on how we're going to get there and it's a good place for me to go, then I'm in. That's not at all what Paul is setting the example to live by. He's surrendered to a power not his own, and he doesn't know the outcome. In fact, that idea that I just said, that we'll go wherever God tells us as long as we agree with what God tells us, that's actually not making him God, that's making us God. That's making God in our image, right? Hey, it makes sense to me, so I will follow you. That's worshiping yourself. That's not worshiping God. It's not serving the Lord. It's serving yourself. And Paul's example of faith is a trust in a God that is leading him to a place where he does not know, and he is at rest in that moment, even not knowing the outcome. It, What's interesting, though, is if we read through this, not only does he not know that he doesn't know the outcome specifically, but he does know, number four, that it's through trials. He says, I'm constrained by the Spirit. I'm surrendered to this power. It's not my own. I don't know the outcome other than I know I'm going through trials. So it's not, it's almost worse. Like God doesn't say like, hey, I'm taking you someplace you don't know. He's like, hey, I'm taking you someplace that's going to suck. But it's worth going, right? Jesus talked at length about the type of peace he came to give. And one of the incredible things about the peace that Jesus came to give is that it's a peace not only when you don't know the outcome, but a peace when you do know that the road leads through difficulty. Think about that. That's, that's another level of peace, right? Paul doesn't know anything about the road in front of him other than he knows it's going to involve suffering. Think about that. Over and over, Jesus taught, and the Bible says, in this world you will have trouble. Okay, I, I heard John Piper say it this way this week. Serving the Lord means being courageous enough not to stop running when you realize the race course leads through suffering. We don't stop because it's hard. Okay? Now, we don't intentionally make it hard on ourselves. Right? I don't need you like penance here. But when you look up and ahead in your life, you're like, hey, there's some business things that this is going to cost me to follow Jesus. Hey, there's some friendship things that this is going to be more difficult if I walk through Jesus. If there's some, like, relational things that if I actually confess and repent, that might be harder. There might be trials. Or there's some political things where the way our world is working, it's actually going to cost me something and suffering to follow Jesus or to be open as a church. We don't stop running. We don't get to choose whether or not we live a life without trials. We do get to choose if the trials we go through are serving Jesus or wasting our life. Uh, I, we were driving through downtown the other day, and uh, there was like some sort of a domestic 
thing going on in front of us. Like the girl was outside of the car and like banging on the window and the boy was in the car not letting her in. And I was, uh, I don't want to be too judgy on this, but like it just looked like they were not making great choices in life. Like just kind of the way that they had presented themselves and things like that. It just seemed like they hadn't made a whole bunch of great self-sacrificial choices in life. And the world would tell you, like, do what you feel like doing. And that, in that moment, I just, I felt really bad for those people because they had been deceived that doing what they felt like doing was going to end up in a great spot. And when it comes to church and like the world, like there's like this false dichotomy, like church people are so stuffy and they just follow all the rules and it's really not fun at all. And I looked at those people, I was like, you know what? It doesn't look like that's very fun either. Like whatever they're going through, I don't know, but it doesn't look like them yelling at each other and not being let in the car and banging on the window. And like, that didn't look fun either. So, so you get to choose the types of, you don't get to choose like, hey, I want to sign me up for the life with no trials. Not possible, right? But if you choose the life of ignoring God, there's some consequences to the sin of that lifestyle that are just as hard but won't produce anything valuable in your soul. Or there's the trials of following Jesus that are really hard also but will produce everlasting glory. Now, the last thing that Paul says about this is he says, I do all this stuff. I, I go where the Spirit's leading me. I surrender to a power not my own. I don't know the outcome. I do know it's going to be hard. But I do it all so that I finish my race. That's my fifth point. And, and finally, at least for these verses and what we're going to do today, he says, the end result of a life serving Jesus in all humility is to finish my course in verse 24. Now, the, the course that's in your Bible, when it says course, that's like a race course. That's the word, like a running race course, like Olympic-type, like marathon. Like, no, this is the way you go to get the 26.2 miles. Like, if we're in a running race, that's the word. There's a, a map of the course, and there's a start line, and there's a finish line. you got to follow the course to get to the finish line. Does anything strike you about that phrase, finish my race? It seems like the goal in Paul's mind isn't to run as far as he can. The goal is to make the finish line. That's diff those, those are two different things. You get it? Right? It's not just we're running to run. We're running to finish. If you're running to run, it doesn't matter what direction you're running, right? If you're just running to run, you can go anywhere you want. And you can Decide, right, left, up, whatever you want. But if you're running to finish, you got to stay on course. Right? If you're running to finish, you have to go where you're supposed to go. So Paul is saying here, the goal isn't to live long. The goal is to stay on course. He's not living his life to stay alive. He's living his life to stay on course. And the goal isn't just to run any race. He says the goal is to run my race. So not just stay on any course, but to stay on my course. Now, usually when people talk about running their own race, they use this as a diversion to escape accountability, right? When we start talking about everybody has their own race to run, we're on our own path, we're on our own journey. Usually that's a, a ploy by somebody who doesn't want accountability. 
right? Like, hey, I'll run my race, you run yours, I'll do my thing, you do yours, no judgment, okay? You stay over there, and you do you, and I'll do me, and we'll all just, that's usually why people bring this up, right? They don't really want people looking into their life to see if they're off course. But that's the exact opposite of what Paul's doing right here. Do you see that? He's not saying, I'm going to run my race, you guys run your race, we'll all be good. He's like, you guys have been watching me. You guys have known how I've ran. And the inherent accountability that is in saying this in front of these people is when he says, I want to finish, I want to stay on course. If he was off course, somebody in the back would have been like, you're off course. Maybe he had a 12-year-old. He's not hiding behind some, you worry about yourself, you run your own race language. He's saying, you yourselves have watched me run this race. You know how I've been running, how I'm dedicated to stay on course, and I'm running my race open and publicly. So the question is, what's my race? What was Paul's race? What did he say the race was about? Is that our race? Does he have a different race? Are we heading towards different finish lines? I don't think that they're different finish lines. This is what he said. I finish my race in the ministry that I received for the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So gospel is the word for good news, and grace is unmerited favor. Grace is just God giving you something that you don't deserve, right? It's similar to mercy. Mercy is not getting something you do deserve. Like you deserve a whooping, and if I don't give you a whooping, then that's mercy, right? But grace is like, hey, I'm just going to give this to you because I really want you to have it. But I didn't pay for it. It's not about you paying for it. It's not about you earning it. This is something good that God has done for you. This is good news that you didn't earn and can't earn. Because if you try to pay me for it, then it's no longer grace. It's shopping, right? And, and he isn't interested in you paying him back for it. He's interested in you giving it you getting it for free. So this is the race. Paul says, I got to stay on course so that I can tell people how good God, the good news of God's unmerited favor. This, this kindness that he has extended to us. Not because we earned it. Not because we voted the right way. Not because we had the right political affiliation. Not because we lived in the right neighborhood. Not because we understood. No, because he was good, and therefore we follow, okay? So, like, I spent, like, a whole lot of time talking about following. Don't misunderstand that you following well is going to get you into heaven. That's not, that's not what I'm telling you this morning. I haven't said that one time. I am telling you that once you understand the good news of God, it molds your heart to then desire to follow because you see how good he's been to you, right? Not in any sort of payment, but in a response with a grateful heart. Now, Here's the question then. If Jesus was our example and Paul was our example and Paul's like saying, you follow me. And then he's saying to these people, you follow me because what's the inferred idea? People are going to follow you, your pastors at the church in Ephesus. Here's the question. Are there Christians who are not called to be leaders? Are there, is there anybody in this room who is like, except for you, you don't have to follow because nobody's following you. Or is it built into the Christian life that disciples make disciples? Isn't that the last thing Jesus said before he left? Go and make disciples. Go and live a life so people can follow you. That's what he's saying when he's saying make disciples. A disciple's a follower. 
And disciples making disciples as followers making followers, right? So living a life that is worthy of being followed is the call, right? That's, what, that's the race. Now, here's where I'll finish. The important part about running your race is not, please hear me on this, it is not that there is a danger in you running somebody else's race, okay? You listen to me, you're like, oh, well, I'm not running my race, I'm running this guy's race. Like, the danger is that you would run a meaningless race. That, that you would run a long time, but you wouldn't get to where you're supposed to go. Or you wouldn't get anywhere worth going. That's the danger. That's why Paul lays this out for these guys at the end. Now, these are pastors. These are pastors. And he's saying to them, hey, guys, follow my example in running a meaningful race. There's no finish line in running a meaningless race because you're off course. And here's the message from Paul to these guys the last time the last thing he's going to say to them, don't run a meaningless race. So you're sitting here going, okay, Jared, I don't want to run a meaningless race. How do I make sure I don't run a meaningless race? He didn't tell us yet. All he told us was what not to do. He's actually going to give us some instructions in the second half of this speech to the Ephesian elders that we're going to read next week. Okay, so I'm finishing right now. We're going to pick up the second half of this speech to these guys next week, and he's going to give us the things to do. But so far, all he's done is tell us what not to do. And here's what he told us what not to do. Here's the summary. You cannot lead yourself, know the outcome, avoid difficulty, and stay on course. Let me say that again. You cannot lead yourself, know the outcome, avoid difficulty, and stay on course. If you're trying to lead yourself, if you have to know the outcome, if you have to avoid difficulty, you are going to be off course, and therefore you're going to run a meaningless race. Here's, I'm going to say it again because I think it's powerful. You cannot lead yourself and run a meaningful race. You cannot know the outcome and run a meaningful race. It has to involve faith. You cannot avoid difficulty and run a meaningful race. So some of you walked in this morning, you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. This is really hard, and I just feel like God's telling me to go this way. Woo! That's, that's, a, that's a good race. Keep running, bro. And if you need a hug, come on up here at the front, Right? Let's, that's where we got to go. If you're like, no, I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm fine. Like, I don't need any help. I, I know where I'm headed, and it's going to be good. Red flag. Red, that's, that's, that's where most of this world is running. They think they're fine. They know where they think they're headed. They got these things out in front of them, and that's a meaningless race. A meaning, you ever hang out with those people? back to my working at the golf course days, speaking of retirement, and like the, the biggest thing in their life was to like golf every morning at 5 a.m. And I'd be sitting there on my mower like, bro, I, you, you're looking at this putt for 45 minutes. You miss this putt every morning. I watch you. Like, you'll be fine. Just hit it. 
Nobody cared. Your wife's not at home like, oh, I please hope he shoots in the 70s. Like, nobody gives a rip, man. If that's your course, like, that's a meaningless course, right? No, I'm not knocking everybody that loves to play golf. I like to play golf when I have the time and opportunity. But that, if that's what you're living for, I would challenge that, right? Not because I want you to, like, do something better for me or I'm trying to manipulate you, but the Holy Spirit has so much more for you than that. The Holy Spirit has so much more to, in, like, just start running the race. There's a joy and a peace that comes from being on course that I can't even describe to you. And if I had more time, I would, but uh, we're out of time. Next week, we'll finish out uh, this chapter, and we'll see what Paul has to say on how we do that, how we live and run a race that is not meaningless. So, worship team, come on up. Uh, let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word and how it encourages us. Um, and in some cases, uh, there's that verse that talks about your word being like a mirror, Lord. And we look at ourselves in that mirror and we go, oh, man. And we, we don't do that, Lord, because you want to make us all feel bad and walk out trying harder and doing better. But we do that because we know you love us and you show us what's really going on in our hearts um, because you want the best for us. And Father, if your spirit is leading right now, uh, maybe there's some people who walked in this morning, they were off the course. Maybe they're running a meaningless race. I don't know what you're doing in the hearts, Lord, but you do. Um, I pray you'd convict hearts right now, Lord. As we sing this last song, may we just humbly get before you and say, Lord, am I running? Am I running the race I'm supposed to be running? Or do I have such a, a need to know the outcome and control my own destiny and avoid difficulty that I'm off course? May we be a people who have seen your goodness, respond in gratefulness, and the desire of our hearts above everything else is to run the race that you've set before us. May that be us, Lord, to your glory and, and the good of this city. Just lead us right now as we sing this last song. We ask you in your name. Amen.